So hi, everybody. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's really nice to be here in the basement together with you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, so a little bit about my life or my story. I'm from Andover, Mass. Um, and when I graduated from university, so I went to school for physics. And during my time there, I switched over to fine arts which later I described as the realization that my search was external, and then I kind of started to see, actually, I want to start to look more at myself. So I started focusing on myself, and art was the way that I did that. And it was around that time that I met a Buddhist monk, and then I realized, okay, my search is actually spirituality, but there was not a major for that in my college. Um, so when I graduated from college, I went to a monastery in Germany. And then I ordained as a monk. And I stayed there for eight years. And in 2014, I left. I traveled through India and Australia, um, came back home for two or three months, then went back to India and Australia, and then came back home again. And uh, I was broke, and I disrobed also. And so then I started to find the way to ground that decade of kind of traveling and learning and practicing, um, yeah, just into a, into a life of a non-monk as a normal person, I guess you could say. Um, living first at my parents' house, which was, you know, I would say probably the hardest practice of all, is having to move back home with the folks for a little bit. Um, and then I was asked by schools to start teaching this, um, to kind of help with the opiate problem that was going on, and then a lot of kids are medicated and different things, so, you know, they're kind of out of solutions, so they just asked if I could come, and then, you know, through that in Andover, I started doing some work in the schools, which then other schools and other towns kind of asked me to do things, and then also, I kind of upped the stakes and started holding retreats for educators, saying that if I go into a classroom and I talk to a group of kids, that's awesome, but ultimately, it's not very sustainable. Um, the system kind of remains the same, and I'm a very limited resource. So if I can get the teachers on board and get teachers to start practicing this and bringing it more into their classroom, it could really start transforming the system from the inside, and that space would be held um, through different kind of um, generations of kids coming through. So that's kind of where I'm at with that, and that's still going on. And then I also teach uh, in Andover through the town and Acton through the town. Um, I teach at MIT once a month, so kind of just different places that ask me to come and help out, I just do that. And um, yeah, and I was just in Australia last for the last couple of weeks, so I was also invited to lead, um, to lead a little retreat and to do some teachings there, so I've been back for a couple days. Um, so my mind is really, it's very interesting, but yeah, so it kind of flipped as far as the times go. Um, so I kind of feel like it's the middle of the night for me right now, and it doesn't help that it's dark now at 4.30 in the afternoon. So anyway, um, yeah, so we have an hour-ish, right, an hour plus, um, and I hear that you guys have been meeting for a little while, and you've been practicing pretty diligently here together, and I thought maybe, which is often how I start my classes, is I just actually ask for questions um, to see what you guys want to know about. 
I could really talk about anything um, for a long time. So, um, yeah, so it's really good just to hear, yeah, who's in the room and what you guys are interested to know about, what you'd like me to talk about. Um, I could either answer question by question or I could kind of just gather questions and stir it up in the pot and just kind of give a meandering talk that more or less covers all of them. Um, but yeah, for me, it's actually more interesting to know what you guys would like to hear about. And don't be afraid of asking a stupid question. Uh, there are no stupid questions, just stupid people. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> little humor. Okay. So yeah, so anyway, if anybody has a question, sure. Um, you said you went to a monastery in Germany for eight years. Was that a Buddhist monastery, or what was it? Right, so that was a Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monastery. So um, the same lineage as Thich Nhat Hanh, but not Thich Nhat Hanh as our teacher, I guess I could say. Um, so my teacher practiced with Thich Nhat Hanh, but he, he wasn't my teacher's teacher or anything. They were just, they're both Vietnamese monks. Um, and I did also spend a couple months at Plum Village and practice with Thich Nhat Hanh specifically in his Sangha there. Um, but yeah, so it's called the Linchi tradition. In Japanese Buddhism, it's the Rinzai. And uh, Linchi was that teacher that walked around and hit people with a stick every time he wanted them to kind of wake up. Um, so we didn't get hit with a physical stick, but our teacher really used his words to kind of hit us. Um, so it was the same kind of thing to try to snap people out of their you know, habitual ways of thinking and their beliefs and being stuck in things. Um, he really found ways to just put people in really terrible situations for them and then kind of point them out in the middle of that situation to really try to accelerate the process by tossing you in the deep end again and again and again. Um, which I guess in retrospect I'm pretty grateful for, but you know, while I was there it was often quite difficult. Is there a distinction between the Vietnamese practice and the Tibetan practice? Yes. Um, so every place that Buddhism traveled to, um, the form kind of shifted based on the culture that it was integrating with. Um, so there's three, what I would call, what main schools of Buddhism or branches. So um, the earliest one is called the Theravada practice, and this is uh, the way of the elders, and this is kind of, um, once the Buddha passed away, there kind of were different subgroups that started to form. And there was eventually a time where there was, I think about, I think, I forget, eight or 16, I think 16 different subgroups um, that were each holding, you know, some of the Buddhist teachings, and each maybe had like a little bit of a different take on what was going on. And one of those 16 groups was the Theravada, what's now known as the Theravada. And um, during turmoil in India, I think there was kind of the, um, I think there was some battle, like Hindus and Muslims and stuff, so there's like some Muslim kind of waves that came down and destroyed a lot of the monasteries. And, um, so Buddhism pretty much got wiped out from India, but Theravada, they had gone over to Sri Lanka and they had brought the teachings to Sri Lanka, this little island below India, and that had preserved the teachings. So then the teachings then actually were also written down for the first time in Sri Lanka. 
And then um, when there was more peace, so to say, in India, the teachings came back over from Sri Lanka. So they were kind of kept safe down there and then they were transmitted back through. And this is kind of the oldest connection to a lineage we have, but nobody can really say for certain if we have the full body of teachings or not because things were definitely lost. Um, and then it started to kind of move. The, the Silk Road really helped a lot with that um, in terms of the spread of Buddhism. King Ashoka also in India kind of really helped with that spread of Buddhism. But for instance, when it went to China, it kind of mixed a little bit with Taoism. You know, so you get kind of Chinese Buddhism has a little bit of a different flavor. Um, when it went to Japan, it mixed with Shintoism, which was kind of they spent a lot of time. There was kind of like a nature worshiping aspect to that. So a lot of Japanese Buddhism, it's kind of like this minimalisticness in nature. And it's, you know, so wherever Buddhism went, it kind of um, melded a little bit with what was going on at that place. So then when it eventually made it to Tibet as well, um, there was the Bon tradition there, which was kind of like a shamanic practice that they had, which used different rituals and kind of different like, kind of magical acts and things like this. And um, so Buddhism kind of went over there and it, and it, you know, mixed with that a little bit, also replaced it. Um, and my teacher also told me, he said, Buddhism also really is good at filling whatever the need of the culture is. So if you think about, for instance, um, China, you know, um, back in the day, you know, so a lot of people very live, living very simply, maybe working on fields, um, very quiet, simple life. So their lives are already very simple. Yeah, so what did the Chinese Buddhists need is they needed kind of intellectual stimulation, right? So when you get into Chinese Buddhism, there's just, you know, libraries of books about emptiness, right? Go figure. Um, <laughs> but really, so this, this, you know, just huge volumes of knowledge and intellectual kind of teachings. Um, but if you go to Tibet, what do we see in Tibet? There's just mountains and sky and snow. There's not much going on. So Tibetan Buddhism has like all of these colors and all of these different kind of deities that they use. And there's a lot to kind of engage the mind and kind of bring out the imagination and kind of, you know, engage the people in a different way. And when you look at American Buddhism, what's kind of emerging as American Buddhism, it kind of goes into almost like psychotherapy and these kinds of practices and how to relax, right? Because we're all very stressed. And so kind of how do I fulfill the need in this culture? It's actually to help people kind of start to relax, come down, connect back in with themselves. Then of course, because a lot of people are disillusioned because of other religions, we've also started having to bring in the scientific aspect of Buddhism, which the Dalai Lama was really instrumental in kind of getting done. That scientist started, you know, measuring brains of meditators to see the difference in, in what's going on to really say that okay there's actually a scientific basis so this isn't a faith-based religion this is a very practical kind of thing that we can all even measure and you know with our western instruments and see that it's real um, so it kind of fills whatever the need is of, of the place and of the time um, and strangely enough i probably know the least about vietnamese buddhism per se um, except, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh specifically, he was a young monk when the Vietnam War was happening. So he was sitting in the monastery and there was planes flying over dropping bombs. And he said, this can't be practice. This doesn't make sense to sit here while people are dying outside the monastery. 
So he kind of started coming up with this thing called engaged Buddhism, where it's very much about living and serving and being a part of the world and not secluding yourself from it so much. And Thich Nhat Hanh himself was also an artist and a poet. And he, when he fled Vietnam and he came over here, he also would send kind of poetry and stories to other Vietnamese in, in um, prisons and camps to re-inspire them and to kind of say, don't give up. So he kind of used his artistic, poetic side to kind of inspire people. And, um, you know, so also it can really be situational too the flavor of a kind of Buddhism that's created, depending again on what the need is exactly of the community or culture that's being brought into. So I want to comment that, that what you just described is very consistent, I think, with what this Professor Siegel in this lecture series has described. And he, he doesn't give it any particular spiritual slant. He mentions all the things you've mentioned. He also mentions uh, Catholic nuns and they study brain waves and we find out that uh, Christian monks develop the same kind of, what's the right word, thought ability, um, awareness through their practice. So there's a lot of ways to do this and he presents it is a pretty straight secular thing, kind of at the core of all those things you described, mentioning all these different dimensions of it. Um, in, in what you do, do you find that people want a, a spiritual component, or is that kind of uh, just one way to do it, and, mm. and it's just as good without that? Sure. Um, I think it depends. Uh -huh. When I teach in schools, um, I very much stay away from anything that would be called even Buddhism right. and really just distill the practices themselves. And the Dalai Lama actually said this really well. He said there's three components to Buddhism. There's the religion, which is like the story of the Buddha and you know the whole ceremony of this. And then there's the practices of Buddhism. And he said those practices can be used by anybody. Um, we all have the same mind, we all, you know, so it's the same thing. Um, so practices can be used for anybody regardless of their religion or their beliefs. Um, and then there's also kind of the, the virtuous qualities that we're all trying to develop, which are also what he refers to as basic human values, um, kindness and patience and harmlessness. And he said, and these are not Buddhist, these are what it means to be a good human. So I feel that it's, it's good to be able to separate those things um, that I feel that most people are kind of more looking for the condensed practical pragmatic application of the practices um, but that being said we are also spiritual beings we are multi-dimensional beings we have the physical three-dimensional thing going on but we have other things going on um, every culture ever has been connected to different spiritual principles. Um, you know, that's kind of a part of what it means to be a human, whether or not we're acknowledging it, it's there. And a lot of people almost seem to first need to feel safe that uh, there's an actual practice to be done that's gonna help them. And then they start allowing some of the spirituality to come in. 
Um, again, maybe because they've been disillusioned with other religions, they feel maybe misled by blind faith or belief that they really want to make sure they have something that they can hold on to before they kind of open up that other level. Um, but even when I did an educator's retreat and I had a bunch of teachers come through, so I also do energy healings and I do group energy healing. So I go to yoga studios and I have you know, people lay down and I channel energy. This is something I learned in India. Um, one of the teachers at the retreat asked me, you know, we were sitting like this, just chatting, oh, what else do you do? And I mentioned this, and all the teachers were like, well, can you do that for us too? You know, and I said, okay, so here I am, you know, sitting with, you know, the principal and half the faculty of one of the middle schools in Andover, and they're all laying down on the floor, and I'm channeling energy to them, and we're really, you know, going deep into it, and everyone comes out like, oh, I saw colors, and I heard voices, and all this stuff, you know, and it's really kind of like a spiritual freakout session where everyone's like, all the stuff's coming up. You know, and people feel really excited by that too. So um, I think it's good to be able to separate that to know what's what, but also not to think that we don't want that. Um, and there's also some aspects of that that I would say actually almost need to work together. Um, Buddhism specifically, it talks about different levels and stages and the path and the progression. And for instance, right, I teach a lot of meditation, but the Buddha said, meditation kind of comes later. The first thing you need to start with is your own behavior. You know, how you act and relate in the world. Are you doing things that you feel good about? Or are you doing things you feel ashamed about or guilty about? Is your life kind of in your integrity or not? Um, starting to build up positive qualities within your life. And once those positive qualities are built up in your life, you start to feel kind of more relaxed. And then meditation comes in as like a natural second component. And then as you're meditating and kind of all these crazy things are happening and you're getting deeper, and, um, then eventually that naturally transitions over to the wisdom component where when the mind is quiet and centered and focused, you start to have realizations. But in really deep meditation, crazy things happen. Um, you know, you'll see things, you'll feel things, you'll hear things. There's lots of kind of paranormal aspects that start to resonate in. Or things that you feel like you must have taken drugs or something because suddenly, you know, right, you feel like you're floating and there's colors and the mind's collapsing on itself. And that, that the structured kind of meditation that we often hear about and teach and talk about in the West specifically, it's kind of a structure that's floating in space. And we're kind of forgetting that it's connected to things on both ends. Um, so again, on the base of that, it's the behavioral level. It's starting to change the way that we live our lives in a way that's more positive. Um, positive meaning that it feels good to us. It's beneficial to us and to others. Um, it's not harming anything or anybody. So as we're building up that positivity, it starts to feed into the mind, and the mind wants to be present because we feel good in our own skin, so to say. And then the mind starts to naturally pull into the present moment awareness, and then it becomes the meditation. And then after the meditation, or at the deep levels of the meditation, you know, there's a whole host of really interesting and new phenomenon that starts to appear to the mind. Um, and 
these are also things that are not often talked about. And this could whether it be things like reading people's thoughts also. It could also be things like seeing and feeling ghosts and different entities and beings around um, or seeing energies moving around the room. Um, in the Buddhist you know, stories, there's lots of monks that um, once they've reached enlightenment, especially they can float up in the air, they can dive into the earth, they can turn their bodies into fire or to water, they can use the elements. So there's almost these superpowers that seem to all of a sudden arise when the mind has been mastered. Um, that, that, that's part of it, but you just don't see much of that. Um, I personally have had experience with monks who have some bits of these kind of abilities. And I've heard stories through the monasteries I've went to of people having also direct experiences with, you know, people that, right, just did things that should not be possible for a human to do. Um, so there's a lot more kind of going on than just kind of sitting here and feeling your breath and smiling. I think most of us are working on uh, focus and awareness. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty basic. Yeah. And we haven't, and, and I think a lot of us work at meditating some every day, but aren't doing as well as we'd like. And uh, in some weeks, the 20 minutes we do here is the only one we get that week. Yeah. Uh, but we all come and we all do the 20 minutes here. And then quite a few of us are doing 20 minutes really regularly. Uh, my wife and I had a week where we tried to do an hour every day. Mm. Um, that was interesting. It actually didn't feel very different from 20 minutes. Once you get going, it, the time kind of goes by. and uh, It felt has good. Your, has your meditation practice changed since you've come here and left the monastery? Oh, of course. Yeah. In what way? It's gotten worse. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the monasteries, they're, they're a structure created to streamline that practice. Um, you're protected from the outside world. You're with like-minded people. You're given kind of times to do things. It's not so busy and distracting. Um, so, yeah, the monastery is really created to, throughout your daily life, you're already kind of in that zone. So when you sit down to meditate, you can kind of drop in much easier and faster. Um, but, you know, it's also easy to distract yourself and run away from yourself in a monastery for 20 years, right? So I wouldn't say that all monks in monasteries are kind of, you know, doing it. A lot of them are actually there for the wrong reasons. Um, but yeah, when you're in the normal, quote-unquote, normal world, it's like it's a battle. You have to really figure out how to find your way in there and how to really use daily life to help the practice and to synthesize all of that stuff together. Um, you know, but I feel much more grounded now than I did in the monastery. So as much as I felt the meditation was deeper, it, it didn't feel as integrated as it does now um, because it was in such a protected space. And I felt like there was parts of myself that weren't really being touched upon and but they were still influencing me so I felt that once I disrobed and I kind of could again just do whatever I want be myself and kind of follow you know the path wherever it leads um, you know everything started feeling much more stable in a way 
Um, and now when I you know, go on a retreat now or when I start to meditate, I feel that I can drop in really fast and it's a very different quality than it was there. I felt One of my friends, he said it really well, he was a monk with me, he said, it's like you're building a tower, a really, really, really high tower when you're a monk. So it's like, it's as if you, know, you see the clouds and you want to know what's above the clouds. So I felt like I was building this tower up, 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 up to try to get above the clouds to see, but the higher the tower gets, the more unstable it starts mm -hmm. to get. And I'm like really trying to kind of see what's above there, but it's, you know, I mean, I'm sitting in meditation for hours every day. I'm eating, you know, one meal a day. I'm trying not to sleep. I'm really, you know, going for it. Um, and then in the deep meditations, I did feel like I was able to start peeking up through those clouds. It's like, oh, this is what, you know, this is where I'm headed. This is, this is the point. Um, but at some point, it just became so exhausting, and it really just felt this is not sustainable for me. Um, and this was very much just a personal choice that I said, I have to actually collapse that whole tower down and build it up again, but with a much broader base, if that makes sense to you. And for me, that meant disrobing and, yeah, kind of integrating into my normal life, going back home, like doing all this, right? And then slowly building a bigger structure that when it eventually gets back up there, it'll be a very stable, grounded, organic place uh, versus kind of this forced, contrived thing that I needed before. In the so, monastery. In the monastery. Yeah. Seth, you go. Um, so go ahead. One of the things I taught in Buddhism was the practice of moderation to, huh. to a large extent. But from what you just said in the monastery, it was not really moderation, right? It's like having one meal a day, not sleeping, meditating the whole day seems to be a bit extreme to me. Hmm. Uh, I think that seems know, extreme compared to how we live our lives, which is actually quite excessive. Yeah, okay. Um, so when the Buddhists spoke about the middle way, it was kind of talking about what does enough mean, right? Like what do we actually need? Um, you actually only need to eat once. Because the Buddha was saying, you know, if you starve yourself, you're going to die. So where's your practice? But if you're just feeding yourself everything you want all the time, like we, you know, we're just sitting there snacking all day long. You know, so the rules in the monastery are for Buddha, you know, Buddhists or monks, so to say, they seem quite strict compared to what we have is actually quite a, a luxurious uh, lifestyle. You know, it seems very austere and strict, but when you start practicing, you just have this robe and you have this bowl and stuff. You see, yeah, there's definitely hardships that come with it, but it's enough. It's enough that I could live a long life, and yeah, it's enough to survive and to keep going. And this is kind of what the Buddha was pointing at. What's enough to survive, to be moderately comfortable, um, but to be able to keep practicing? And you shouldn't have anything extraneous. So anything that's extra that you don't actually need to practice, he would cut it off. And this is the life of the monk, right? So it's everything that's not needed, you really let it go. Um, yeah. I'd like to ask about something that we've talked about a bunch that the professor doesn't really address in his lectures. We've talked about this idea of being in the moment, which is kind of a popular way to talk about mindfulness. And two different ways to do that. One is what a psychologist calls flow. So you're not thinking about the past or the future. You're just really totally engaged in right now, as you might be if you're uh, 
doing some kind of piece of artwork that you're very involved in the creative process or a vigorous game of handball with a well-matched partner or uh, rock climbing where you're totally focused on the thing at hand and there's no thoughts of the tax return that you're supposed to be doing and whatever else is going on, just totally focused on the moment. But then that's, that's different, or is it? That's my question, from really being mindful where you're aware of your awareness, aware of your thought stream, aware of how it may or may not be valid, uh, be, be more of an, an observer of yourself and what's going on around you. How, how do those two things, two different ways of being in the moment, how do they compare? Sure. Um, so in Buddhism, mindfulness is not like a free-floating concept. Um, mindfulness has to be together with um, so we have something called like right mindfulness, right? Okay. Like in the Eightfold Path, like I would say right mindfulness. And it's for instance, in this moment, um, so I, I often say this to people, so right now, feel the chair that you're sitting on. Yeah? Right now, notice the hum in the background of the room. The ticking of the clock. Feel the clothes on your body. So these were all things that were there this whole time, but we haven't noticed them. Because our minds has been listening to the dialogue, to the words. So there's, in any moment, thousands, millions of things the mind could be mindful of. Mm -hmm. But the mind is only becoming mindful of the one thing that it finds the most important in this moment, which is what I'm saying, I guess. Unless you're bored and you're thinking of something. <laughs> so that's mindfulness, right? I say it's like a flashlight, right? It's like it's shining on things. Um, but who's controlling that flashlight? And the thing is, if I'm sitting here and um, somebody's talking, I can shine that flashlight and just listen to the words, or I could shine that flashlight and be like, wow, this is really nice to be here. I'm so thankful to be in this person's presence, almost like a gratefulness, right? Or I could sit here and shine the flashlight and be like, what is this person talking about? This is ridiculous, right? <laughs> Judgment, yeah? So that we can shine the light in different ways to look at different things, but are we aware of what we're doing? Are you aware that every time you're listening to somebody, you're actually judging them, right? Are you aware that you're actually you know, giving gratitude to people when you're with them? So are you using right mindfulness, meaning is your mindfulness guided and directed by your own decision? What am I being mindful of in this moment and why? When you say your own decision, your deliberate decision. Your deliberate decision. Yeah. Okay. Because otherwise, I could sit here thinking about how tired I am and the jet lag I have, and I could be making myself miserable. I can make all of you miserable quite easily if I wanted to, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I could be using that mindfulness in the wrong way. I could just be harming myself and everybody because I'm aware of just negativity in myself and around me. Right? 
Or I could be using that mindfulness to focus on the positive things in myself and, and other people, which would be like an uplifted kind of thing that would be happening. So to use your mindfulness skillfully, to be skillful, what am I being mindful of and why? How am I using it? And then the second thing you talked about, which would almost be like metacognition, right? Aware of your awareness, right? Homo sapiens sapien, right? Aware that we're aware. That, I would say, would just kind of be like the flashlight just kind of like looking back on itself a little bit, right? So I can be aware of you guys in front of me, or I can be aware of sight as a whole thing, or I can be aware of, but what is seeing the sight? What is looking through the eyes? You said it way better than I did. The awareness of your awareness that I meant was awareness of the choices that we make, as you described it. Where do we shine that flashlight of our attention? Are we just following some automated program that comes from our reptilian brain, responding to what's around us and directing our attention to things that catch it? Or are we deliberately choosing where to put our attention and noticing what we're not choosing to put our attention on and knowing that that's also there? Uh, that's what I meant by awareness of our yeah. awareness. Yeah. yeah, and this you have to know. You have yeah. to know because my teacher said to me, he said, you know, if a, a burglar goes into a house, he's very mindful about opening up that window. He's very mindful about climbing in and sneaking to the money drawer and taking, you know, he's very, very mindful of what he's doing, but he's committing a crime. He's hurting people. And also, he also made a joke once about the Sangha Thich Nhat Hanh. And he's like, yeah, you know, breathing in, I'm walking, breathing out, I'm smiling, I feel my feet walking. Opening my eyes, I noticed that I've walked into the middle of a lake, you know. And he said, you can be mindful, you know, of your breathing and your smiling, but you're actually walking into the middle of the road, you know. So you have to really see mindfulness in a bigger context as well. What are you being mindful of and why, and is it the full picture or not? Um, and I started doing some things with the horse therapy farm in Andover. So I have been doing like a mindfulness components and then the instructor there has been doing things with the people and the horses and we've been kind of working together. And he says that the horses have the reactive brain, that they have their wild natural where they run around and they want to kick and this and they feel threatened because they're, um, they're prey animals, right? They have the eyes on the side of the head, you know, and we're predators, we have the eyes in the front, right? So when a horse sees a person walking up towards it, biologically, naturally speaking, they think they're being stalked. So from a very natural point of view, a horse wants to get the heck out of there if it sees a person coming towards it. But over time, right by, I guess once upon a time, roping down horses, kind of restraining them, then slowly training them and showing them that they're safe, that they can do our bidding and we'll feed them and take care of them and be safe, um, we start to create a thinking mind in the horse that it starts to feel safe. But what happens is every now and then if the horse gets spooked, it'll go back to that reactive mind. It'll start kicking. And the horse trainer, he said his job is to keep bringing the horse back to the thinking mind. That if it's starting to react, he'll just keep turning it in circles. And then he'll turn it back the other way. Then he'll turn it back the other way. Then he'll have it go around. Then he'll have it change directions. And have it go slow, go fast. That he keeps it thinking so that it doesn't drop into the reactive brain and kind of do its natural programming. And we're very much the same way, that if we kind of just don't put in any effort and we're left to our own devices, 
will go through our natural programming, which, you know, I'm sorry to say, comes often from our parents and from our society and from people and groups and organizations that don't necessarily have any wisdom at all or have our best interests in mind. Um, and we'll just be running off of old programs blindly and aimlessly forever. And it really takes that conscious effort, effort to start bringing up a thinking and reflective mind to start, yeah, taming that horse, sort of say, inside of us and kind of starting to turn it and tell the mind where you want it to go. And maybe you'll see in meditation too, right? You'll sit and you'll have all these thoughts, you bring it back, you have all these thoughts, you bring it back. Same kind of thing. We live in such a busy environment. We've been trained since kids to think and to analyze and to kind of structure things and that's the way forward, you know. And we have now a habit of jumping into our heads, into our thoughts. And we're kind of having to work against that habit to keep bringing ourselves back. And then you're up in the thoughts and bring yourself back and up in the thoughts and slowly kind of unravel that habit until you start to realize, oh, it's actually safe just to be here. Oh, actually, it feels pretty good just to be here. Oh, actually, the present moment is nice. There's nothing wrong with the present moment. That we start to slowly make more and more contact with this place and realize it's okay. And then also start to realize that actually, happiness is available right here. And slowly, that's that shift that when meditation starts to feel good, the mind all by itself starts to arrive here. Um, the, the mind is not in the present moment because it's discontent. So if your mind is ever outside of the present moment, it's because it's discontent. It's searching for something else. It wants something that's not here or it doesn't want something that is here. It's, trying, it's at war with the moment. So it's always trying to get away from the moment. And it's the same like the horse. You have to take the horse and be like, it's okay, it's okay. When we're practicing meditation, we're training the mind to realize it's okay here. This place is okay. And then slowly it starts to feel relaxed and it starts to feel good and it starts to feel blissful even. And the mind then starts to pool into the present moment. Um, it's, um, it's kind of like a, you know, a moth to a light. It's kind of feeding the conditions. Yeah, so meditation, it's a condition-based process, not a result-based. So if you're trying to grab your mind and shove it where you want it to go all the time, you're going to then be fighting against yourself, right? Where there is suppression, there is uprising. Um, if you try to force yourself, you're going to react and rebel. Um, nobody wants to be forced. Um, Jack Cornfield said a really funny story that um, there was this man who would always feed his dog cod liver oil every day because it was good for its coat and for its eyes and stuff. So he'd call the dog over and then he'd hold the dog between his legs and he'd kind of pry its mouth open and the dog would be like wrestling with him and then he'd kind of put the oil in its mouth and then, okay, go, you know. And he said in one day he was doing it and then the dog actually knocked over the bottle of oil and ran off. And I was like, oh man, it's a mess and that, you know, it's a like $50 bottle of oil. And then he looks up and the dog comes back and it starts lapping the oil up off the ground. And he realized that it wasn't the oil the dog was fighting against, it was the manner of application. You know? And it was the fact that because he was restraining and fighting and forcing, the dog was trying to get away. You know? 
and this is really how it is with us in meditation. We're often, the whole reason we're trying to meditate is because we're control freaks, because we're stressed out, because we're pushing ourselves too much, because we're exhausted. Yeah, and then what do we do? We sit down to meditate and we do the same thing in our meditation. We're using the same strategy that's destroying us in our daily life in our meditation and we're confused why we don't get results. So I'm wondering, could you lead us in some kind of meditation before? Yeah, of course, yeah, things? sure. Yeah. <laughs> Can you say more than that? One, one, of, one of the um, talks that impacted on me the most um, was and it kind of relates to what you were, uh, what you started talking about, and when you talked about how Buddhism integrated with different cultures in different ways. Um, but in terms of the practice of meditation, um, the pitfalls that we face in the West are different than the pitfalls that we face in the East, and that's kind of where you're going. So I want to just move you into <laughs> keep, that. Keep pushing way. me that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I wonder, do we want to take twenty minutes to? Uh, so we have until quarter of eight. Eight, but musical goes, goes quick, right? Yeah. And musical start at quarter of. Sure. Upstairs, quarter. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask a question, but you don't have to answer now. You can put it in wherever you want. But sure. you know, you're talking about you know, <clears throat> if I meditate and if sometimes you know I do get to a place where I'm, like my mind is like totally present and feels very full mm. and I'm very focused and um, and I just find the word I've always found the word emptiness which is often used to be kind of a wrong word and I, if you maybe if you have time if you could speak about that or something yeah yeah so all these questions are leading to the same place right and then we'll meditate and it all kind of clicks in at once right um, emptiness is the wrong word that's just an English translation of something um, there's no such thing as emptiness. Um, if you pour water out of a cup, the cup is now filled with air. So the cup's empty of water, but not empty. And I think that's kind of the point, is that you can be empty of something, but not empty of everything. And, you know, you can empty the mind of thoughts, but then the mind is full of contentment. Yeah. And meditation, it's just kind of the opposite of doing. The med meditation is the opposite of ego. The meditation is the opposite of willpower. So if you empty out willpower, meditation arises. If you empty out ego, meditation arises. Um, if you empty out the noise, meditation arises. That's just kind of the natural counter to that. Um, but in Buddhism specifically, when we talk about emptiness, and this gets into Buddhist theory, which isn't necessarily um, going to support the meditation right now, but that's saying that it's empty of an inherent self. And this was kind of the Buddha's big kind of revelation, is that, um, that everything is kind of a conglomeration, and it's conditioned, and it's changing. That there's nothing that's an inherent self. And again, this was a, um, an important part, because in the time, with, you know, Brahmanic kind of beliefs, and with the Atman, and kind of the, the universal soul and kind of the, the eternal soul and this kind of thing, the Buddha came and he said, there is no such, there's nothing that's always there forever. He said, everything is just this changing process and it's moving. And if you really look at nature, you see that, that everything, it's a patchwork and a piecework of many different things that are all shifting and moving. And there's nothing that's only one thing. 
um, it's all kind of flowing in and out of each other and the rain's coming and becoming the earth and becoming the plants and going back to the earth and we eat it and it becomes our bodies and it goes back out and if you even just examine natural principles you see that everything is just moving and changing and interweaving so um, so the universe is quite full actually but it's empty of having a, a self you know a, an independently existing self so that also means that the whole point of this practice that we're going to more than just kind of relaxing us from our anxiety but in a deeper way it says well if that's what this is all about why do we feel like we're separate why is there a Seth here and then all these other people outside of us through our senses we have the perception of inside outside me and you um, and so the path then is nothing else but slowly shifting from feeling like you're this independent separate entity to really experiencing kind of this openness and this connectedness and this patchwork of kind of consciousness and really making the experience of connection and of kind of togetherness and of movement and impermanence as they say um, and the mind once it starts to make contact with these things it also on a very very deep structural level starts to release and, and, and unravel and open up and that's kind of what the Buddha when he was talking about this freedom and this peace um, because if we sit here and meditate and we close our eyes and we breathe that's great for these 20 minutes and then you open your eyes you get back in your car and then you're back in your life again you know so by really going down to these fundamental perceptions and starting to open them up and really reflect on them that's how to really create much deeper and long-lasting and impactful changes in our life that you don't even have to meditate as much because you on a very base level you're more peaceful than you know you were before because you understand something differently yeah so meditation can also only be a short-term solution if we're not bringing in the wisdom component as well and really starting to to open up you know why is the mind stressful you know instead of always putting out the fire and then the fire reignites itself why don't we look at the causes why does the fire keep lighting where's the stress coming from where's the anxiety coming from how to stop that stuff from arising again yeah that would do us much more than meditating for an hour every day but then not integrating that and and using wisdom to really start piercing into the into the mind and the belief structure and the habits and to see how do i stop this from happening again and then even if I don't meditate, I'm incredibly peaceful all day because I've deconstructed all of that stuff. Yeah. It's not really like a good pep talk to start meditating. <laughs> well, that, that's but it's part of the path. Yeah. Consistent with some of what Professor Siegel said, he, he talks about the origins of our anxiety and, and how we can, uh, mindfulness practices can help us, like say, keep that from lighting up. He didn't use those words. Sure. That's, yeah. that's the idea, yeah. yeah. So yeah, sure. I mean, so shall we? Shall we? We shall. We shall. So, Patty, you have a timer? Well, I think, I, I don't think you need it. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, okay. I'm pretty good at 15 minutes until the people upstairs start. We'll, we'll hit them walking around and then the organ will start. Yeah, we'll play. see what happens. Yeah, we'll, okay. Do whatever you want. Yeah. We've, we've meditated through singing. It's Okay. Use your wisdom. <laughs> I didn't say that I have any wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> then you have any share. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Um, yeah, so we'll meditate 15 to 20 minutes. As you know, maybe somewhere towards the middle and end of the meditation, you'll hear some noises upstairs, some acquiring. Um, just stay relaxed. The present moment is always the present moment. And meditation, it's not about compartmentalizing and pushing things away. It's really about just being with what's there and allowing the mind to kind of slowly sink by itself. Yeah, so even if something comes into your awareness that quote unquote shouldn't be part of the meditation, allow it in, yeah, your doors are open. So whatever's there, just let it come in and just let things be, yeah? Okay, so as the piano comes in. Okay, so we sit in a way that we feel comfortable, that we feel stable. Feet flat on the floor. And at the very beginning, just taking a moment to acknowledge that we're sitting in this room together, to acknowledge that we're in a sacred space, that we're in an intentional space. To allow yourself the next 15 to 20 minutes of time just to relax, These next 20 minutes, there's really nothing to figure out. You can just leave all of your life concerns, projects, plans, and worries at the door. And you can just pick them up again as you're leaving. So really taking this time for you. And we close our eyes. And we take three deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. And really exaggerate your exhalation, filling and then releasing. Good. And again. As we breathe and feel our body sitting here, I'm going to ring my bell three times. We'll simply listen to the sound, allowing it to fade in and then fade out of our awareness. There's nothing to do but just to relax and breathe.
So we've closed our eyes. We relax our eyes and the muscles in our face. We relax our jaw. We relax our shoulders. Down to our arms. And hands. And fingers. We relax our chest, our heart, Relax our belly, and stomach, relaxing the muscles in our back. our legs, down to our feet, Feel the ground beneath our feet. The chair that we're sitting on. Feel the space of the room around us. And we feel our body sitting here breathing. 
Breathing in, air comes in through the nose, filling the body. Breathing out, air goes out through the nose, body relaxes. As you breathe in, imagining the energy of relaxation coming in and filling you. And as you breathe out, imagine the energy of peace filling the space around you. So in relaxation, breathing out peace as if it's being exuded out of your pores. Feeling the peacefulness of the breath as it flows in and out through the nose.
Letting go of trying to meditate. Just breathing and relaxing. Listening again to a few sounds of the bell. Three last deep breaths in through the nose, filling the body out through the mouth. We rub our hands together until they're warm. Place our hands in our eyes. We can rub our eyes and our face, our head, our ears, back of our neck. Leaning forward, we can rub our lower back. Slowly open our eyes. 
shake out or stretch out any way you need to. something right. Yeah. Deep relaxation. When you're in a monastery, is it guided like you did? It's just silent. It's impossible to be an omnivore Buddhist. Omnivore. Uh, the Buddha was an omnivore. They just had a monk bowl and collected whatever food people gave them. The only rule is that nothing can be killed specifically for him. So this is also the rule for the monks, that if um, they know, think, or suspect that, that something was killed to feed them, then they, were not, they did not accept it, because then you're kind of linked into the karma of it, of killing it. But um, if people made dinner, and they happened to have meat in their dinner, and Buddha was walking with his bowl, and they wanted to offer him food, then it was fine, you know, because so he didn't support killing and he didn't want his practice to create killing. But also, if there was already something that was killed and being eaten and he had his bowl, then um, yeah, then he would accept it. These days, it's kind of a tricky one, especially because we have a choice, right? Um, so it's, I guess, up to everybody to make their own moral choices. What do you do when your class isn't active? Same thing? Like, just like this. Yeah, so I'm going to be starting a new series um, later. <laughs> <laughs> I think in Jan January, maybe. Yeah, so it's going to be, a, I think, a six-class series. Um, yeah, and it'll be usually a talk. And then what well, we do, sitting meditation, walking meditation, and sitting meditation. So it's a little more kind of practice time involved as well. And that's a six-week series through the town programming. So if you're interested, it's kind of like a little mini retreat once a week, I feel. So it's cool. So are those on Thursdays? They have been. They have been. Do you lead longer retreats? Um, so I, like I lead these weekend retreats for the educators. I just went to Australia to lead a retreat. I am open to leading retreats. I would actually love to start getting more into leading retreats for, again, normal people. <laughs> so not like educators, not, but just people that want to come. Um, the center that we use for the educators, um, kind of raises the costs a little bit, which is fine when you're getting grants and stuff. Um, I still have not found a place that I know of that we could do with like a group of people and even spend the night there, um, that the costs would be okay, and then also food and stuff. So kind of the, 
It's not necessarily complicated, but I just simply haven't found kind of the logistics that balance it because I tried to lead a retreat and then it was just so expensive like nobody could come because to cover the cost of the place and then the food and then my cost was kind of like so I'm, I'm definitely open to it um, if anybody also like wants to do that or help to put together a retreat I have lots of people also in my network that would love to come to a retreat if there was one um, but I've just never at least not yet here found the way to make that work um when I was in the monastery, I tried to do retreats once a month, um, kind of right as low cost as possible and as um, just open as possible, almost like a mindful weekend once a month for the community. I thought that was really supportive and it felt great to do. Um, much easier when you're in the monasteries, so you have all the facilities already there. Um, so I haven't yet found the place to, or how to build that kind of around here. So, Let's find one. Let's find yeah. one. So, yeah, so if anybody wants to, you know, be involved in putting together retreats. Um, so is, is it true that project. a place like this building would be just unsuitable because there's other stuff happening here during a weekend and that would... I mean, potentially, you know, it's all just, it's open to see how, yeah. It's, it's all just what we want and, you know, kind of a, a co-creation and if, if there's noise upstairs, but everyone just accepts there's going to be noise upstairs, then that's fine. So yeah, whatever. Yeah, if there's any last questions about the practice or about Buddhism or anything like that. If you're in a monastery doing your thing, if what what and you get up in the morning, do you have any periods of exercise or do you? walk in the garden or the woods or I mean like simplify your life but yeah just sit there all day yeah I mean every monastery is different oh um there's not one kind of template for it so our monastery we served the community so we did a lot of work and you also have to take care of the monastery, so we were also cooking and cleaning, and we had a Chinese medicine center, so there was like acupuncture and massage, and we had a big garden area, so we were very active all day long just doing things. Um, I've also been to more meditation monasteries where you're kind of sitting in a hut alone for you know 20 hours a day, and you just come to grab your meals with the other monks, and you go back. and. So your own practice or your exercise, it's all kind of personal responsibility, how you want to do it. So yeah, every monastery is different. Did you go to Dharamsala in India? Yes. And how was that experience? Um, great, I love Dharamsala. It's, I call Dharamsala my second home. Yeah? Yeah, so I've been there five, maybe five times. Yeah. Is that a monastery? Um, so this is where the Dalai Lama has his um, residence and exile, his community in exile. Um, and this is kind of north, north India, so it's pretty north India. Um, just starting to kind of get into some mountains. And yeah, it's a really cool area. Lots of Westerners and travelers, and then also the Tibetan community, and then there's monks, so it's also a really interesting mix of people. Um, but yeah, so I, I really enjoy spending time there. Okay, last question. <coughs> going, going. Itch or don't itch? 
Yeah. So again, um, this all comes back to what you want, right? So there's yeah. Since you said that, everyone said. You know, there's some very militant styles of practicing. Like I did, you know, the ten day vipassana Goenka retreat, where you sit and you start. To, I don't know if anyone else has done this. There's there are these 10-day Vipassana retreats. There are centers all over the world. The first one in America is actually in Shelburne Falls, Mass. Uh, it's free, believe it or not. And you go there for 10 days, and you get food and lodging. And you, the trade-off is that you have to meditate for 10 hours a day. Um, and there's kind of like video instructions that kind of guide you on what you're supposed to be doing. So it's incredibly intense. You wake up very early in the morning, and you're practicing all day. So you feel like you're half awake, half asleep the whole time. And they start bringing you to the point, because it's about going into body sensations, um, that you're not supposed to move for the whole hour eventually, that even if there's an itch or there's pain, you just start to go into that and break it up and feel it as just movements and heat and different things like this. So if that's your practice, then of course not itch, because you want that sensation to kind of sharpen your mindfulness on. Um, also, if you're really going for discipline, that's also sometimes a practice just to kind of build up your forbearance a bit is that you sit through discomfort. Um, but as a general rule, I say if there's pain or something, of course move. If there's an itch, of course scratch it. Make yourself as comfortable as you can. If you're sitting there battling with an itch, then what's the point? We're not meditating anymore. So really allow yourself to be comfortable, love yourself, take care of yourself. But you'll probably also eventually get to the place where you find that there is no such thing as true comfort, that it's endless, that it will be an endless struggle to have the room quiet, to have the dog shut up and the kids shut up and the people upstairs stop and everything to be perfect and then it's too hot, then it's too cold, then I'm tired, then I'm hungry. You'll get to that place where you realize there is no such thing as a perfect condition and if there is, it'll pass anyway within a couple minutes and something else will happen. So you really also start to just accept and be with whatever's there and you know shoot for maybe like 70 80 percent of, of good enough and then feel like that's a, that's an okay zone to be in um you know that's that's the other half of the meditation it's letting go and just being present and just giving up kind of you know and then you can actually find peace when you give up so Okay. Okay. I want to remind people that we have a suggested donation of five dollars, and this week Seth is getting that money, which was a generous offer on his part um, to not set a fee for us. So we don't, in general, we're not trying to be picky about the suggested donation. But this week, if you can give, we hope that you will. And on behalf of everybody, Seth, I want to thank thank you so much for coming. This was the fastest. Yes. Hour and fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Keep it up.